You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 24, which will actually take us through the end of chapter 3. We'll be starting chapter 4 next week. This is verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in us. Sorry, abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Been a lot of confident people in my life. Before I came into the ministry, I uh, was a musician, full time, uh, played in a couple of groups, one of which uh, traveled, played all over Texas, some of the surrounding states, did a couple of small tours here and there, uh, played with a lot of singer songwriters, met in that music industry a lot of very confident people, a lot of people who were very confident in what they could do with an instrument or what they could do behind a microphone. I met, in fact, a lot of people who were perhaps overconfident in what they could not do uh, in an instrument or behind a microphone. Uh, At that same time, I was also in the real estate industry before I came into the ministry. I got my real estate license right out of high school and uh, worked with uh, family uh, doing real estate. And in that field, again, lots of confident people. I mean, you got to be very confident to sell someone a house, right? Uh, Take them, show them around or list a house and sell it to other people. And even in ministry, what I found is I think there's a great sense from people that uh, pastors, particularly senior pastors like myself, are very confident, some perhaps more than others others, full of confidence, full of many things, uh, I might say. But I tell you that uh, I've never met in all of the confident people, I've never met someone more confident than a dog. Just being honest, I mean, think about this. Dogs are the most confident beings on the planet. For years, Jessica and I had a little Yorkshire Terrier by the name of Toby. Some of you got to meet him. Some of you were even lucky enough to have been bitten by him. He was just a real piece of work. Um, Not a very good dog. Loved the dog to death, but uh, just not a very obedient dog. But that dog was confident. That dog was confident. I remember we used to go to a friend's house that had two boxers and we would bring Toby with us when he was a puppy. I mean, this was before he was fully grown. Fully grown, he was you know, this big. He was a puppy and, and we would go and, and hang out at, at our buddy's house who had two boxers and Toby would low-key bully these boxers. They were like 500% larger than him and they would run from him. They were terrified of him because of just this like confidence that that dog had. It reminded me of an article I read this week about a, um, a boat tour in the Bahamas that would take people out to see the majestic waters in that beautiful part of the world and, and uh, you know, in hopes of seeing some fish or maybe even something a little bit larger swimming around around you because the waters there are so clear, so wonderful. And on this particular day that this article was written about, they were uh, fortunate enough to see a 12-foot-long hammerhead shark. 
Really amazing creature, right? And I mean, clear as day, beautiful weather, and they could see him swimming around, and they're taking pictures, and they're taking video on their phones, and their oohs and awes very quickly turned into frantic horror as a local dog ran down the dock and jumped out into the water to try and presumably attack this shark. <clears throat> There's video on social media, the onlookers are terrified. They come to this showdown, the, the shark begins to circle this dog as he is charging after this 12 foot long hammerhead shark and inexplicably, out of nowhere, the shark, after evaluating the situation, swims off. <laughs> the article quoted the reservation manager, a woman named Rebecca Lightburn, who often saw the dog running along the shore. It was a very playful dog, a well-known dog to the community, would greet tourists after getting off the boat, but she had never seen him do anything like this before. She said, I guess this time, the dog decided he wanted to protect his house. Either that, or he thought he made a new friend. Um, <laughs> Once the shark swam off, the video shows the dog paddle back to the dock and climb up and walk off like nothing had happened. I mean, that takes confidence. That takes an immense amount of confidence. This morning, as we look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, we find a passage that in many ways deals with confidence. John is going to use three different words here, all of which convey an idea of certainty or something in which we can have confidence. Verse 19, he says, by this we shall know. It's the Greek term gnosko. It's a word that means to rightly perceive or know something with certainty. You can be assured. Uh, he says in verse 19 as well that we are reassured. It's the Greek term patho. It's a word that, that means to be convinced or persuaded. You can have confidence in it because you're persuaded. You have confidence in, in, in the, the truth or the truthfulness of whatever it is that you're, you're being reassured of. Verse 21, John, John straight up uses the term confidence. Uh, it's the word parasia. It's a word that means literally a freedom in speech, a freedom in speaking. And, and this makes a lot of sense, right? Because to speak freely means that you got to have a little bit of confidence to just say whatever you want to say. And so it makes sense that John would use this word here as well. And really this whole passage is gonna deal with the different ways that we can be reassured, we can be certain, we can be confident, particularly in the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. And it's not just any kind of confidence. It's important for you to understand that. It's not just like self-assurance and this sort of like positive thinking that is common in the world today. This is a specific kind of confidence that is rooted in something specific. Look at verse 19, he says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth. Our confidence is rooted in this. The question is, what does the this refer to? Now, I think one of the benefits of studying a book of the Bible verse by verse is that when we come to questions like this, where we're looking back at something to try to figure out what did he mean by this, it's relatively easy. We just look back at the verses we looked at last week or, or maybe a week before, determining, or depending on how far back John is looking. Look back uh, at, at verses 16 through 18. We covered this at the last part of last week's message. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this is perhaps a little bit of a recap from last week, but let's put this all together because remember verse 19 picks up on the heels of what John was saying in verses 16 through 18. John is saying that as Christians, as Christ followers, you ought to lay down your lives for other Christians in the same way that Christ laid down his life for us. And if you remember last Sunday, we talked about how the love of Christ is selfless and that it puts others before itself and that it is satisfied satisfactory in that it accomplishes something. It's not just thrown out there. It it accomplishes its mission. And his love was sacrificial in that it costs something. In, In Jesus' case, his life. And in the same way, John says, we as Christ followers ought to love others in deed and in truth. Selflessly, satisfactorily, sacrificially, rooted in God's word. That is how we ought to love. And then we get to the the passage this morning, and John says, by this kind of love that we just talked about, by that kind of love, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And in other words, what he's saying is that when you love others in deed and in truth, When you are obedient to the commandment of Christ to love others in this way, it will produce a kind of confidence in you that you are truly born again. You can evaluate this obedience and be reassured, be confident in the work that God has done in your life. And and this confidence really comes to us in at least three different ways in this passage. And so let's jump into the text and talk about it. We begin this morning with a confidence that comes from our converted life in Christ, our conversion. Notice in verse 19, John says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. By the, in other words, actionable love that we have for other people, we will know that we belong to God's family, that we have been converted. You could say it that way, that when you came to faith in Christ, there was a conversion that takes place. The Bible teaches that things changed in you and with you when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And I want us to park here for a moment and talk through this idea of conversion, because this is something that I think is a pretty misunderstood concept within the church today. Let's begin with what conversion does not mean. Conversion does not mean that now in Christ you're a better version of yourself. It does not mean that when I believed the gospel and was born again, I didn't just become Derek 2.0. It wasn't an update or an upgrade of, of sorts. Conversion really means at least three things. It begins with this. Conversion means death. It begins with death, kind of a macabre topic, especially on Mother's Day. Sorry, not sorry, but it's what the Bible teaches, so we're gonna talk about it. Conversion means death. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, it means that your old self, your old life, is put to death. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 9, verse 23? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now understand this. Jesus does not explicitly say here, you must die to yourself. He says you must deny yourself. But what does he follow that with immediately? You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. In other words, take up your instrument of death in the same way that Jesus took up his instrument of death, the cross. And what did Jesus do with that cross? He suffered and he died. 
It's not, I'm not, it's not a trick question. So what he's saying here is you are to deny your own wants and desires, your opinions, the way you think the world ought to operate, what you think is truth. All of that you deny, you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus into death. This is what led Paul, I believe, by the inspiration of the Spirit, to write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. To be a Christian, then, means to lay down your life and to be crucified with your Lord. The old you is gone. The sin, all of your sin, all of your shame, all of the things that you wish that you could take back, that you regret, you don't have to take back. You don't have to have regret over any longer because those things were nailed to the cross along with your old dead body. Conversion means death, but it also means life. Paul continues in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the death part, but notice, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I died, but I also have been given a new life. And now I'm not just alive in my own power. I'm not just alive in the flesh, but I'm alive with a life that was given through faith in the living Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it was actually incidentally the first Bible verse I ever memorized when I came to faith. It is, it is the first verse in the, um, the Bible, the topical memory system from the Navigators. If you've ever done Navigators topical memory system, it is the first card and the first pack. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, new life. Behold, he says, the new has come. But notice what he says right before that. What does he say? The old has passed away. What he's saying is that if you are in Christ, the old you has died. It's been crucified with Jesus, and there is now a new life that has come, new creation. You you didn't just get inspired to live differently. You died and you've been remade. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, he says that conversion means that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, you have been given new life, but this time it's a life that's not gonna die. It's a life that's eternal. It's a life that is imperishable because it comes from the seed that is imperishable, which comes from the spirit of God, not from the flesh, which will ultimately die out. So check this out. This brings us back to our primary text here in 1 John 3. Conversion, because it begins with death, but it also means you get new life, It also means that, number three, you've been given a new lifestyle as well. Galatians 5.24, Paul says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So here's what this means. All the things that you used to want to do, all your opinions, all the, the way that you used to think the world ought to be run, what you think truth was in your old life, all of those things have been crucified along with you on the cross. Ephesians 4.22 talks about your former manner of life. Paul writes that. And he says that it is corrupt. It's no good. It's no good. It's gone bad. In other words, Christians... When you come to faith, don't continue to live according to the former passions or the former pattern of your former life. 
Those things are dead and gone. Those things are no more. You now have a new lifestyle. You have new desires. You have new passions that you are to live by the Spirit. That's why John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's the old lifestyle. That's the old way of thinking. But you have a renewed mind. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's old you is gone, dead, crucified, buried. You, if you're in Christ, have been born again by the blood of Jesus. You've not just been inspired to live differently or, or encouraged to live differently. You've not just turned over a new leaf. You have ended up on the cross. You were crucified with him. You've been given new life and with that, a new desire to live differently. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here's what this means practically for you. When you obey the commandment that Jesus gives us to love others in deed and in truth, you can step back and evaluate, look at your obedience to do that, and you can be confident that you belong to the truth, that you've been converted, that you have died with Christ, and that you now have a new life that is empowered by the Spirit of God, oriented towards the Word of God. Because only a person who has died, and who has been born again, and who has been filled with the Spirit will do this, will truly want to love others in this way. In other words, your obedience to the commandments of Christ should make you confident in your conversion. And notice in verse 19, he says, by this we shall know. It's in the future tense here in the Greek language, meaning that as you go along in the future, these ongoing moments of obedience serve as these way markers throughout your life that you can look back to and go, I know that I've been converted by Jesus. I know that I have his spirit. I know that I've been born again. I know that I'm of the truth because only a person filled with the spirit of God who is of the truth would do this. Because people of the world don't do this. Because if you were living in your own power, you would reject the things of God and you would be selfish and you would only love people when it's convenient. You wouldn't sacrifice. You wouldn't put others first. You wouldn't do these things. So this kind of love that puts others first, that's satisfactory, that's sacrificial, that that models the love of Jesus for us, it's evidence in many ways of a converted life in Christ. So you can be confident Every time you obey his commandment to love others in this way, you've been converted by him because obedience comes from him, not from yourself. There's a confidence that comes from conversion. Second, there's a kind of confidence we find in conviction as well. Confidence and conviction. If you keep reading, let's start in verse 19 again and go all the way through verse 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So what is John saying here? This is a passage that in many ways is dealing with the conscience. The word heart here in this passage is the Greek term cardia. It's the word from which we get our term cardiac, heart, cardiac, cardiovascular. In the New Testament, uh, the heart really in the Old Testament as well, the heart represents the innermost life of an individual. The heart is the seat of emotion, of intellect, reason, affection, impulse, desire. 
It's really your conscience in a lot of ways. And in the context here of this passage, it's certainly really more oriented towards the conscience definition of the word. I assume that most of you in here probably drive to church. We live in a part of the world that does not have much of a public transportation system. I imagine most of you either drive yourself or are picked up and ride in a car or since we're in Texas, more than likely a truck, right? And, uh, and be proud of that, by the way. I, I will say, it's a, that's a badge of southern pride, isn't it? That you drive an eight-mile-gallon truck. That's really, you're doing, you're doing good things for us here. Um, you've all experienced this, I'm sure. It's one of the most annoying parts of adulthood. If you've ever been going about your day, you're minding your own business, everything seems to be going fine, you're just trying to get by, trying to be a decent, God-honoring individual, in your life, and out of nowhere, you hear that little bing, and you look down on your dashboard, and your check engine light is on. Yeah, that collective sigh is, I felt that. It's the worst, it's the most annoying, because the thing is, is, is immediately, what that, what that little light signifies is time and money that I don't have or wanna give to fix it. And now you're on a time crunch because you have to get it done before you can get your car inspected to keep your car legal, right? Unless you play that little game I play where you see how many months you can go without getting caught. I see you. Two years? Wow. Give her a round of applause. That is... All sin is lawlessness. I want you to remember that. John talked about that last week. So you gotta get your inspection, right? It's annoying, the light is annoying, but it's also really helpful. It's really helpful because the light tells you there's a problem, there's something wrong that you need to address, and if you don't address it, you do so to your own detriment because the problem is probably gonna get worse, not better. You can ignore the light all you want, but it's not going away, it's gonna get worse eventually. Those lights are in many ways, as inconvenient as they are, meant to help us. And in the same way, you can imagine that your conscience is much like one of those dashboard lights. That when the light of your conscience turns on, it is saying to you, something is wrong. You need to address this. There is a problem. Stop doing what you're doing and fix it. And if you ignore it, it you do so to your own detriment because it is only going to get worse. Now here's the catch. This is important for you to get, to get. The conscience is not in and of itself infallible. Your conscience, contrary to some of your popular belief, is not God. Your conscience is subject to failure. It can be wrong or misguided. In the same way that a car light on your dashboard should be properly wired into the mainframe of the car in order to work the right way, your conscience should be rightly wired into the word of God, into the truth of God's word. And even then, your conscience can fail you. Your conscience is subject to the fall like everything else in all of creation. It's still subject to malfunction, meaning that it can work in ways against you, not for you. Now I say all that to say that here's what I think John is getting at here in this passage. There are gonna be times in your life, you're gonna to relate to this, every one of you, if you're being honest, will relate to this. There are gonna be times in your life when you choose to do the right thing, when you choose to obey God's word and love someone in all the ways that we've talked about, sacrificially, selflessly, satisfactorily, all those things. 
You're going to choose to do the right thing even though you don't want to. So let me give you a minor example. It was on my mind this week because we set two of them up and it's a practice that we, uh, are, we do a lot of here at City on a Hill and that is meal trains. It's a big practice in our church. We think that there's a very practical and helpful way of loving others who are either struggling or just going through a season of change or, or, or difficulty and, and, and we found that providing a meal or several meals is just a helpful, effective way to show them love. At the end of a long day, especially if there's a lot of stress or a lot of things going on, the last thing you want to do is try to figure out what am I making? And so it's just a very practical way for the church to come around somebody or a family of people and say, hey, we love you. We want to love you in a selfless, sacrificial way, in a very practical way. Here's what we're doing. But I will say on the, on the flip side of that, if you are the person who is engaging in making the meals, it also takes time and money. And so it's very easy to see the needs of other people and think, do I really have time for this? Right? So let's just set up an example here. Let's say that you see the need. You know that you should probably help. But you begin to wrestle with this internally because it's a particularly busy season for you. The bills are maybe a little bit tight. Uh, It's going to be a hassle. You're not really sure when you're going to fit all this in. And so you sort of wrestle with that of like, man, I don't know that I really want to do this. I don't know that I have time, blah, 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 all the reasons, all the excuses. And maybe after a little bit of time thinking, the Holy Spirit kind of gives you that gentle nudge and you come to terms with the fact that really, these are all excuses. This is all excuses. I'm capable of helping. And so you get on your stupid phone and you sign up for the meal and the time slot that you can make work and you do it. Even though you don't want to, you sign up for it and you commit to practically loving that person despite the fact that you don't really feel like helping in that moment. Can we relate to that? Okay. The point that John is making here is that in times of this kind of obedience, your conscience might sense the disconnect between your heart and your actions and bring a charge against you. So here's what it'll look like. Your conscience will say things like, this isn't really obedience. You're not really obeying Christ because you don't even actually want to do this. And true Christians want to help other people. Your conscience will say things like, you're such a fraud. You're such a fraud. Everyone thinks so highly of you because of how much you're helping others in this moment. But if they only knew how inconvenienced you really were by this, they wouldn't think so highly of you. The point that John is making here is that when that happens, when your heart condemns you, John says, God is greater than your heart. And he knows all things. He knows everything. Yeah, the Lord does see that. He does know that you're struggling. He does know that you're struggling with obedience. He knows that you're wrestling with the inconvenience of it all. He hears that, he sees that, but you know what else he sees? He sees you walking out obedience despite those feelings. He sees you taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and doing it anyways. In the world of recovery, we, we, say, we like to say, you fake it till you make it. There are, there are days, and if you've been in recovery, you know more often than not that you don't want to do the next right thing. You don't want to do the obedient thing. So you fake it till you make it and your heart you'll find often will begin to follow in that pattern because you take those thoughts captive and do what God has said to do anyways. Sometimes you will be asked to do things by God that you do not want to do. In fact, I would argue often, more often than not, you're going to be asked by God to do things that you do not want to do, but you do it anyways. We have this misconception in the church that obedience should be just like giddy excitement. 
It's not. You think Peter was giddy to be crucified upside down? You think John was giddy about being exiled on Patmos? Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, take this cup away from me if it is your will, but your will be done. Obedience often requires coming up against those feelings that say, I don't want to do this, and doing it anyways. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross every day, daily, daily be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Daily take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's a daily struggle. But you gain confidence not only when you walk in obedience when it's easy, but when your heart is not fully excited about it and and you feel the conviction of your conscience, you know that God is at work in you. It's evidence of your identity in Christ. In these moments of of inward conflict, they're so important for your spiritual development, your spiritual formation. You can have confidence that you are of the truth because someone who is not of the truth wouldn't feel this sense of, of conviction. They would go, you know what, I do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign up for the meal train so that everyone will see how awesome I am. In fact, I'm gonna do all the meal trains. I'm gonna have meals coming out of my pockets. People are going to think I'm the meal master. I'm going to be the most godly meal-giving man in the church. And I'm gonna get credit for every one of them. No, if that's your heart, then you need to repent. John is getting at the fact that when you don't wanna do something but you know you need to, you know it's right, That conviction, that sense of conviction is evidence of the Holy Spirit of God working in your life, bringing your conscience into correction when it's wrong and bringing you into correction when you're wrong and moving in you into a place of obedience regardless of how you feel about it. Your conscience is subject to the scripture. It is subject to Christ. And so you can be confident in the converted life that God has given you And you can be confident in the conviction that you feel when your conscience seeks to condemn you because God is greater than your conscience for he knows everything. And last, let's talk about our confidence that we feel in connection. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Ultimately, because we have confidence in the converted life that we now enjoy, that Christ has fully remade me, and because I have confidence in these moments of conviction that my conscience is at work, but God is greater than my conscience, it gives me an ultimate sense of confidence in my relationship with God as a whole because it's, it, it stands to show that I'm actually connected to him by his spirit. That gives me a final kind of confidence in my relationship with God and the love that God has for me without measure. It's a kind of confidence that that led Paul, again, by the Holy Spirit to write Romans 8, 38, and 39, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. He says, for I am sure, there's that word patho again that John used in verse 19 to, to, to mean reassured. Paul says, I have assurance, I am certain, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, you can have confidence in the love that God has for you as one of his children. You can have confidence that God has loved you to remake you to, to rebirth you, to give you new life, to give you new desires and new passions, and to connect with you through his spirit. Look at verse 24. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let me say this clear, clearly to you. 
you need to hear this and you need to hear it often. You need to hear it daily. Especially given the, the fact that we are, in our context, evangelical. And by our denomination, we are Baptists. We're just not that mad about it. Our tradition, theologically, is one that greatly, and I believe to our detriment, neglects what I'm about to say. And so I want you to hear this and really think on this. Do not neglect the Holy Spirit of God. Do not neglect the Holy Spirit of God. I cannot overemphasize this enough. The importance of the Spirit in your life. We talk a lot, and right, rightly so, in our tradition, we talk a lot about how hopeless we would be apart from Jesus, the Son of God, and hopefully we agree on that. If not, we have way bigger problems to, to settle. We are a hopeless people without the work of Christ on the cross, amen? Additionally, I would say that without the present work of the Holy Spirit, we are equally hopeless people. Equally hopeless people. Now, maybe you don't agree with that. Maybe you think, well, without the Spirit, I might not have the spiritual gifts that I never use. That was a, that was a shot fired. But maybe you're thinking, you know, I, I, would, I don't have the gifts, but I, would I really be hopeless without the Spirit? Let's think about this for a moment. Let's trace this thing out. The work of Christ on the cross guarantees for us redemption and salvation and propitiation, a lot of things that we've talked about already in the Under Construction series in the first part of 1 John. So let me ask you this. How are redemption and salvation acquired according to the Bible? Not by works. Through what? Faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that salvation is by grace, a gift of God through the vessel of faith. And what is faith? What is James' definition of it for 37 years here? Taking God at his word. Now let me ask you this question. Where does faith come from? Do I manufacture faith? Is, is faith, let me get this, is faith just the product of getting all the right information? We're a little bit guilty of that in our denomination for sure. We like to think, well, if I just learn all the facts about the Bible, if I can just study the Bible more and know more and more scripture and memorize more and more scripture, then I can definitely have better faith. Then I'll have faith for sure. Wrong. What source does faith come from? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You cannot make a profession of faith that Jesus is Lord apart from the working power of the Holy Spirit of God. Now let's just keep this going. Let's see how far this, this rabbit trail leads us. How do we know any of this is true? What, what source, in other words, are we getting our information from? It's not a trick question. The Bible, the scripture, the living and active word of God, the infallible word of God, right? This is where we learn everything about who God is, what he's done, plan of salvation, people of God, church, all of it is contained right here in the Bible. But again, how are we to rightly understand the Bible apart from the Spirit of God? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So how do we understand what God has communicated in the Bible? Through seminary? 
through multiple academic degrees, through commentaries, through language learning. Those are all some of my favorite things, by the way. Committed a lot of years of my life to those things. The answer is emphatically no, none of those things. We understand the Bible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are helpful tools. We should absolutely use them. But all of these things are useless without the Spirit of God. He goes on in verse 13. He says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, in other words, the person in the world, the person who has not been born again, the person who is not of the truth, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they, the words of Scripture, are spiritually discerned. The, 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 the Scriptures are living and active. They're infallible. They contain God's revelation of himself. They're full of so many helpful, wonderful things that we need to know and treasure in our hearts, wisdom, knowledge, the whole nine yards. But get this, it is impossible to understand any of it without the Holy Spirit in your life. So listen. We are a hopeless people without the Spirit of God. The work of Christ will not be received by faith without the Spirit who gives faith. The work of Christ on the cross will not be rightly understood from Scripture without the Spirit who gives understanding of Scripture. John says, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So where does your confidence ultimately come from? Does it come from a converted life? Yeah. Does it come from conviction in your conscience? Absolutely. But ultimately, you will not be converted. You will not have a new life. You will not have a conscience that yields itself to the lordship of Christ apart from the connection that you have to God by the power of his spirit. So do not neglect the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Do not go through your life unaware or uninterested in the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Because if you are a Christian, you're the temple of the Spirit. You are full of the Spirit. You've been sealed by the Spirit. You've been gifted by the Spirit. These are all things that come directly out of the New Testament. And in moments of crisis, you'll find deep confidence in the work of God in your life because of the Spirit who abides in you. I want to challenge you this week if you don't already pray every day, I'm going to challenge you, first of all, to pray every day. If you do, then pray twice a day, three times a day, whatever. Just take it the step up. I pray five times, then go six times. That's fine. <laughs> every time you pray, I want you to commit to asking God to reveal to you things that God desires you to know about yourself through the illumination of the Spirit. I want you to pray for God to use you and direct you in a way that only the Spirit could use and direct you. And I want you to pray that God would show you what gifting he's given you through the Spirit, that you might start to use it to bring edification to the body as the New Testament commands us. Every day, I want you to commit to doing this. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal and use you in ways that only he is able. And see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? He could send you to another part of the world. And we'll rejoice with you in that and we'll celebrate with you in that as you go and do things that you never believed you could do because you can't, but God can through you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're a grateful people, but we do confess that uh, there are times when we neglect, that we're, we're, we're not interested in the leading of the Spirit and, and we repent of that, God. 
bring correction to our hearts and help us as we pray each day that, that you, by your spirit, would minister to us and lead us and equip us and challenge us to walk in the way that you have designed us to walk, to walk in the purpose and mission that you have given us as your people. I pray, God, that you would lead us in a way to do the work that you have for us in such a way where we are crystal clear about the fact that it is not our power but yours. We desire to see you receive glory. We desire to see you get the credit. We are simply broken vessels that you have chosen by your goodness to abide, to remain in as your people. And so we give you glory for that and, and thanks and gratitude and worship. How we thank you and, and how we pray for those here this morning, God, who, who are spiritually bankrupt, empty. But maybe this morning, God, for the first time, the voice of your spirit is nudging them to repent to confess Jesus as Lord, to be reborn, to be converted, to die, and to be given a new life and new desires, to live a new lifestyle, one that is yielded by the spirit that brings honor to you, one that is unlike the former manner of life, and that we might be a church to welcome them in and walk with them. How we love you, how we give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. I want to make you aware one thing. Uh, next, this coming Thursday, this weekend, begins our Hope Conference. And uh, Thursday night, 7 p.m., is a free screening of the In His Image movie. Uh, you do not have to sign up for this. You can just show up. Uh, we're excited to, uh, to view this. And then Friday and Saturday is the actual Hope Gathering, and you can sign up with this QR code here on the screen. It, it is not a part of our sign-up system. This is a conference that is being put together by uh, the Help for Families Ministries, and so uh, use that QR code. If you miss it while we're in here uh, or have trouble with it, then come find us. If you want to register, we'll get you to the right place to sign up, pay, all that, and hope to see you in here Friday. This issue is the tip of the spear, I believe, for our culture with regard to the church. How the church, how Christians handle the question of the LGBTQ community matters a great deal because a lot of churches have either caved or have swung a hammer of, of honestly just nastiness. And we must possess the heart of Christ to love with kindness but speak truth according to the word of God. It's a rare, weird middle ground that we must be committed to. We're going to learn how to do that at that conference. Hope to see you there. God bless you. We'll see you next time.